the third message in the series of Contending for the Faith. And that series we started in January, we're taking it all the way through to the end of the year. I want to deal with 12 important doctrines that the Christian faith believes. Uh, and as such, you might find that some of them are some of the doctrines that we'll deal with. There might be those within the Christian faith who say, well, I don't necessarily believe that particular thing, but this is where we as a church stand. I as your pastor stand. And so we're going to take uh, a number of these and just go through them and hopefully we'll end up the year in a wonderful celebration of doctrine and the importance of Christian truth. Listen, if we don't believe, somebody once said, if you don't believe in something, you'll fall for anything. And so I, I, I find it so absolutely important for us to have doctrine that is sound. Paul told Timothy that he was to teach sound doctrine, to hold to sound doctrine. It's important that we understand what the Bible teaches about various uh, truths as we arrive at them and, and we go through them. Uh, and today I want to cram into just a few minutes this morning uh, a subject that would take probably an entire few weeks, maybe eight weeks to deal with, but it is the subject of the fact that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to read this passage of Scripture, and then we're going to move around in Scripture quite a bit, but the Bible lets us know this, starting at verse 5. It says this, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. The central figure in humanity are not the great philosophers. Central figure in humanity are not those within the last century or within the last 50 years or so who have made great uh, advances in technology, great advances in medicine. I mean, we think about medicine now and today as opposed to what it was 50 years ago and it boggles the mind that the advances have happened so quickly and so fast and yet the central figure in all of humanity is in fact this one by the name of Jesus Christ he is the polarizing figure of our modern world you mentioned the word God in a general and even religious way, and not too many people in society get worried about that because the concept of God, at least as society understands it, has been defined as one thing or another, 
while a variety of religions define the name God as in a very generic kind of flavor so as not to be offensive. But all of a sudden, you begin to discuss the name Jesus Christ and nerves begin to get on edge. All of a sudden, people begin to squirm a little bit. They're not really sure what's about to happen. You begin to talk about him in a respectful and reverent way. We know that the name Jesus Christ is brought into the violence and the hatred within our neighborhoods, within our homes, within families, in our schools, and, and in our workplace. People curse his name, and, and they bring his name in that way. It's not offensive to anybody. It just, you know, people, they, they do that, and somehow you begin to talk about Jesus Christ, though, in a way that is respectful and reverent, and yes, as a Christian, loving. And all of a sudden now, there is this concern about what you are about to say, and are you going to try to cram something down my throat, and are you going to, you know, and people get funny, all of a sudden you mention the name of Jesus, and oh, I, you know, I don't want to talk about that, I don't want to, I don't want to discuss those things, and, and they go on and they, they just go ahead and, and use his name as a curse word, they're happy to discuss him in that way, but they don't want to discuss what kind of a change this man, Jesus Christ, has made in your life. The opportunity for offense becomes great. And yet, it seems as though we look at Jesus as the one figure in human history that changed so much. For the Christian, Jesus Christ changed your life. You are here today not because some pastor had an influence, and certainly we know that pastors can have influence on people's lives. But you are here today because of the fact that you understood by faith as the scriptures revealed that Jesus Christ came into the world. He came to die on a cross for your sins and that he rose again on the third day, which is what we're going to celebrate next Sunday and really should be a celebration all year long that we serve a risen Savior. But the change that he has made in your life causes you now to live a life full and, and abundantly and, and within a new relationship to God the Father. He has given you hope. He presents this man, Jesus Christ, the greatest challenge to the kind of lax religious response with which most people try to appease their conscience. Most people figure, I come to church, what's the big deal? I come to church or I go to church every now and then. Or, you know, I believe in God. We've heard it all before. I believe in God. The Bible says that the demons believe. But they tremble at the thought of who he is. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ, or the idea that Jesus is the Son of God, brings a variety of responses and also invites a number of definitions that don't necessarily say all the same thing. For instance, the one thing that you will find only in Christianity is this concept is, it is, that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is deity. He is God. 
The Muslims will say, they will agree with you that a person named Jesus Christ lived and in fact he was crucified. He taught some good things, but they will never agree with you that he was God. In fact, they will suggest that he was a prophet on par with their prophet Muhammad. And Muhammad holds a little bit of a higher level than Jesus does. For the Hindu, Jesus Christ can be a God, but he is simply one of their many thousands and even millions of deities. So for them, he is a God. Judaism will allow for the historical person of Jesus But to them, he was nothing more than a self-proclaimed messianic figure that did some good things, that said some good things, but in the end died a rebel. Jehovah's Witnesses, you get into the area of the cults, they simply change some words around in their translation of the Bible to fit with their concept that Jesus was the first created being which is not new. It wasn't new. They didn't invent that concept. That is an old Aryan uh, heresy that has been around for centuries and was condemned centuries ago that Jesus was, in fact, the first created being. The Mormons will say that Jesus was the spirit brother of Lucifer prior to his incarnation and that Lucifer fell because of his jealousy of Jesus I don't even want to tell you what the Mormons believe about how Jesus became a man into this world. It's downright degrading of God. But we find all of these claims. We find all of these different ideas about Jesus. Some will say he lived. We believe he was around. But they don't confess him as Lord. They don't confess him as God. But Christianity claims this. That Jesus was both fully God and fully man at the same time. He, He possessed attributes of deity and he possessed attributes of humanity. We don't have anything like it within our society by which we can go and we can say here, here is a good illustration of the fact that Jesus had a human nature and a divine nature all wrapped into this one person of Jesus Christ. There isn't anything that you and I, I I, I have searched, I have looked to find a good illustration that will help us to understand it a little bit better. But there are no good illustrations. You say, well, but what about a husband and a wife? Okay, they are in fact, according to scripture, a husband and wife, the two are joined together and they become one. But they're still two different personalities. They're still two different people. It's not even really a close kind of a picture. But nonetheless, the Bible reveals these great truths. That Jesus was fully divine and fully human. It's an amazing thing, but to the early forms of philosophy and religious thought, it wasn't actually possible in their ideas or ideals for God to become man because there was this belief and this early kind of of heresy that Paul, both Paul and John specifically wrote against called Gnosticism. Gnosticism just taught that all matter, this pulpit... You, our flesh, everything that you see around you that you can touch, all matter is evil. 
And the only thing that's good is that which is on a knowledgeable level or that which you can know or that which is spirit. So they said, well, but God is spirit, so he cannot become humanity. And yet in Jesus Christ, we find that he did become humanity. They used an interesting word that we find in scripture but was used by the early Greek philosophers to describe an intelligent force that was behind it all, God. And that word was word. It was this term, or the Greek word is logos. Now we find it in John chapter 1. I'd like you to go there just real quick. John chapter 1, and I want to read this first verse of Scripture. And we're going to see where John now comes in and he breaks in in an almost scandalous kind of position. This was this idea of the logos or the word being ascribed to an intelligent person, somebody who was behind everything, was not only uh, a common idea within Greek philosophy, but it was also a common idea within Jewish uh, tradition as well. That in scripture at times the Jewish paraphrases, which is this book called the Jewish Targums, they referred to God, Jehovah, they would, they would extract his name out, out of respect for his name, and they would insert this word logos, or the word so when the Bible says that the people of Israel in the book of Exodus went out to, to Mount Sinai to meet with God, instead they would say the people of Israel went out to Mount Sinai to meet with the Word. And it referred to God. But now John is going to break in some scandalous concept of referring to Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, as the Word. Listen to what he says. In the beginning was the Word, or Logos. And the Word was with God. That is, he existed prior to the incarnation. The incarnation is, literally means, becoming flesh. Becoming flesh. Prior to that, he already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word, here it is, this is really where John begins to drive a wedge between that which Greek philosophy held to and that which Judaism held to, and the Word was God. Now here we have something so absolutely scandalous to those who would read it within Judaism and those who would read it within Greek society at the time. That, that he wrote, Greek was the common language of the day, so they would have understood where, where he was coming from, but they wouldn't have liked it. Proclaiming that this man, Jesus Christ, was in fact God, the creator God, who had become a man and come in human form. But today I want to deal with, and I said all of that in that long amount of time, by way of introduction. But I want to deal with four things. The claims of his deity. The foundations of his deity. His humanity. And finally, what does it mean for you and me? The practical implications for your life and my life that Jesus Christ is 
God. The claims of his deity are found in scripture. We're in the book of John. Let's go to John chapter 8. And we're going to find that Jesus himself claimed to be God. We're going to see that he claimed, he himself claimed to be God. The Bible says this in John chapter 8 and verse 58. It says, I tell you the truth. Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, get this, I am. Not I was, I am. That is a constant, continual, eternal, everlasting existence from eternity past into eternity present and eternity future. He says, before Abraham was, Abraham lived Hundreds of years, thousands even, a couple of thousand, maybe 1,500 years prior to this time. And Jesus said, guess what, Pharisees, you hold to this man Abraham that he is your father. I'm telling you, before Abraham was around, he says, I am, which is reminiscent of when God showed up to Moses and said, I am that I am. That is my name. I am, always was, always will be. Jesus said before Abraham was, I am. So here he is, he is saying, I am the eternal God. That one statement shows us his eternity and his coexistence with the Father. He always was, folks. He was always there. He was there in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. Not only this, John chapter 5, verse 18, we're going to see what Jesus says about something that was absolutely scandalous to the religious leaders of the day. And in fact, the Bible says in this one verse of Scripture, let's look at it, John chapter 5, verse 18, it deals with the, his equality with the Father. For this reason, the Bible says, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him, not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, at least in their opinion he was, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Here he is. He exists in the beginning, not the first created being like the Jehovah's Witnesses will teach and the ancient Arian heresy taught, but, but he was with God. He was there. He coexisted. He was equal with the Father. He was that second person of the Trinity that was right there in the beginning that spoke the worlds into existence that said, let there be light, and there was light. What does the Bible say in Genesis? Genesis uses a plural form when it speaks of God says, let us make man in our image. God was not schizophrenic. Jesus was not schizophrenic. He was one with the Father. It is, as we believe, the Trinity, three in one. There is one God, one God shown to us in three persons. That is another thing that is difficult to wrap your finite mind around. But nonetheless, the scripture teaches us that that is the truth that we find. 
Now, not only did Jesus claim to be God, but also the New Testament writers claimed he was God. I already, we already were in John chapter 1, but let's go back to John chapter 1. And I want you to see these verses of Scripture. A little bit further as we read down from John chapter 1 and verse 1, we get to verse 2. This is John writing, and he says he was with God in the beginning. Verse 3, 4, 5, and then down to 14, the Bible says, Through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. He says everything that you see around you that has been made has been made by this logos, this word, Christ himself. Through him all things were made. In verse 4 it says, in him was life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness is not understood. It jumped down to verse 14. And this is the wonder, one of the wonderful verses around Christmas time that we pull out and we just jump on this one. But this is so important for us every day of the year. The word became flesh. That is that logos, that intelligent designer who is behind everything became one of us the bible says he became flesh made his dwelling among us he didn't stand afar off folks he didn't stay out there somewhere he didn't stay out there as some mystical force some mystical energy that the greek philosophers tried to say was the logos and some intelligent designer that was out there no that designer said i'm gonna become one of them he made his dwelling among us. We have seen, that is John says, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father. Not only did John say that he was God, but also Paul proclaimed it. We read the verses earlier in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. It says, who being in very nature, God. Can't get any clearer than that. In his nature, he was God. In his nature, he remains God. He is God, but did not consider it equality with God something to be grasped. What about the Old Testament? What does the Old Testament say? Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. Go there. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. Isaiah 9 and verse 6. The Old Testament writers heralded the coming of this God-man. Christ Jesus. The Bible says this in Isaiah 9 and verse 6. And then we'll jump over to Isaiah 7 and verse 14 in a moment. But the Bible says, For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of peace. Notice that for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. So it indicates that it was going to be a child, was going to be a son, a male child that would be born, and he would be referred to as mighty God. Now, chapter 7 and verse 14. The prophet prophesies and says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Not God above us, 
not God somewhere far away from us, not God who is disinterested in us as, as, the, as deism teaches and says that he is the clockmaker, he set it in motion and has nothing more to do with it. No, but instead the Bible says that he would be Emmanuel who is God with us. So that's what the scripture says, that's what Jesus says. But let's look at the very foundations of his deity as we see it in scripture. And I'm not going to deal with all of these because there are six of them. And they are, let me just list them if you're taking notes. His virgin birth. His sinless life. His miracles. His substitutionary work on the cross. That is that he died in our place. His bodily resurrection from the dead. And his exaltation to the right hand of the throne of God. The very first one that most theologians deal with is the virgin birth. It is absolutely essential in Christianity that we hold to this concept and this idea, this teaching, that he was born of a virgin. That Mary was conceived of the Holy Spirit. That what was found within her was not by human design or human order, not by human flesh, but this was a complete and total God thing. And this was, she was conceived by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit caused her to become pregnant. That's why it's so important that we hold to this simply because if this came through natural means, that is her husband Joseph, then we could not say that he was sinless in his flesh. It had to come from somewhere else. This concept and idea of the virgin birth that we hold to this, the Bible teaches it in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 23. The Bible says, and, and Matthew is actually quoting what we just read in Isaiah 7, 14, that the virgin will be, be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel. And here Matthew helps us to understand what it means, which means God with us. So we understand this teaching from Scripture that he was, this is the foundation of his deity, his virgin birth. It is absolutely essential. There are those who will come along and who will say, well, no, it wasn't really a virgin birth. No, it actually was a virgin birth. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what Scripture teaches both in Old Testament and in New Testament. But not only that, another foundation is this, his sinless life. This is also absolutely essential that Jesus would live an absolute sinless life. He came into the world like we are, yet without sin. Or he was tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin. Here was this man who looked like a man walking around. He's moving about in society. But unlike society, he never gave in to the temptations of sin. Never once. He had flesh and blood like you and I. All of these things. And yet he was absolutely a sinless. The Bible says this. You don't need to turn there. But listen to what it says in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 22. It says he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Imagine that. He is the one who came, and we're going to understand why in a moment, but he came and there was no sin 
found in Jesus. His miracles, we won't get into, time, into that too much, but his miracles testified to the fact that he was the Son of God. He did things that only God could do. He did things in the time that he lived, in the time that he ministered, that, that was anointed by God. And that's what Acts chapter 10 and verse 38 tells us. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power and how he went about doing good and healing all who are under the power of the devil because God was with him. His substitutionary work on the cross, where would we be without it? That Jesus died in your place. You deserve to die. I deserve to die. We deserve to die on the cross. We sinned against God. We were hostile against God. The Bible lets us know that we were his enemy. And yet the Bible also teaches something so absolutely essential that he died in our place. Listen to what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 3. Go over there if you would. I want you to see these, these scriptures in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 3. Paul says this. Paul says these words, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 3, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for whose sins? Our sins. According to the Scripture. 2 Corinthians 5.21 is such a powerful and wonderful verse of Scripture. Over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, the Bible says this, God made him who had no sin, that is, he is sinless, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is such an awesome and powerful verse. Imagine, and I, I, I cannot comprehend this. Because I, I, was ra I, was, I was sinful. As humanity were sinful. But he had no sin. But all of the sin of the world was placed upon him. Jesus wanted to escape the cross in his humanity because of the suffering. But you can imagine that part of the agony of Gethsemane was in his deity. He understood that all of the sin of the world would be heaped upon him. I can't fully comprehend what he felt in that moment, but he did it for you and for me. His bodily resurrection, we're going to get into this next Sunday. And we're going to deal with this and how important it is for us to know the resurrection of Jesus Christ and how important it is for us as Christians to believe this. But the Bible says this, if you're in 1 Corinthians, go back to 1 Corinthians 15. The Bible says this in verse 4, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 4. It says that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. According to the scriptures. Folks, he's not in the tomb anymore. This is one of the foundational truths of the deity of Jesus Christ is that he is alive right now. He didn't stay on the cross. 
as many of the Catholic uh, Church believe, they look at the, the crucifix of the Catholic Church, and that's their vision of Jesus. Folks, we have an empty cross. We have the symbol, symbol, the emblem up there, but there's no Jesus on that cross because he came off the cross, he went into the tomb, and he came out of the tomb. He's not dead, folks. He is alive. And because of that, he is proclaimed to be the Son of of the living God. The last one is his exaltation to the right hand of the throne of God. You don't need to turn there, but listen to what Philippians chapter 2 and verses 9 through 11 says. Therefore, we read this earlier, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He was exalted. The Bible says this, and I I love this picture. You imagine the disciples standing there with Jesus after Jesus came out of the grave and Jesus had had given his, his last instructions and he's talking to them and all of a sudden, now Jesus is ascending into heaven. All of us, right there in front of them. I don't know how fast it was. I don't know if it was... Who knows? We don't really know. But Jesus... And, and, and the Bible, and you get the picture that all of a sudden the disciples did this. They're looking up into heaven. Their necks are craning like, wait a minute. Isn't there something more you want to tell us? Wait, isn't there something more you want to instruct us? Isn't there something more that you want to do with us? And they're looking and they're looking. The Bible says that the angel said to them, why do you stand there gazing up into heaven? Why are you standing there looking up? Fellas, it's your turn. The Holy Spirit's going to come. Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of the Father. Because of that fact, it is proof that God accepted him as the perfect, spotless sacrifice for your sins. He is deity. He was also fully human. He was also fully human. There are a number of places that we could go in Scripture, and I want to quickly go through this one. Just because we need to understand that he... Everything that he did on this earth when he was here, everything that he went through, he experienced the human functions of life. He was hungry. He got hungry every now and then. How many are hungry right now? You're ready to eat. Now you are because I mentioned it. If you're hungry, Jesus knew how that felt. He, He didn't, you know, he didn't have this, you know, magical, mystical. He didn't allow his divine nature to to push the hunger away to the point he would never, ever have to eat. The Bible shows us in different places where he ate. And in fact, after his resurrection, with his resurrected body, he sat down and he ate on a number of occasions with his disciples. The most poignant of, of this, this idea of hunger is the Bible says in Matthew chapter 4, verse 2, that after Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, the Bible says plainly, he was hungry. You would be too after 40 days and 40 nights. There is no getting around it. He was hungry. He experienced weariness. Remember when he met the woman at the well? John points out in John chapter 4 and verse 6 that Jacob's well was there and Jesus 
tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. He was tired. He had been traveling. You, you didn't hop in a car and go anywhere. You traveled by foot everywhere. Or if you were lucky, by donkey or some other kind of mode of transportation of the day. But most of the time, it was walking back and forth from Nazareth up in northern, northern Israel, northern Galilee, down into Jerusalem, into southern Judah, into the southern part. It was a, it was a number of miles, but it took time to get there. And on this particular day, he said, fellas, we got to go through Samaria. And he goes through Samaria and he sits down. John says he was tired, so he was weary. But not only this, and this is a wonderful thing about his humanity, is that when he was tempted, he was tempted in his human nature. He experienced temptation. Hello, so do we. This is how we know he identifies with us. This is how we know he understands what it is that we go through. In fact, turn over to Hebrews. you got to see these verses of Scripture. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18, and then we're going to go over to Hebrews 4. The Bible says this, because he himself, that is Jesus, suffered when he was tempted He is able, get this, to help those who are being tempted. You say, well, I was tempted yesterday, but not today. Okay, but you know what? The Lord was able to help you then. Say, well, I gave in to temptation. I failed. You didn't have to. Not because you're perfect, but because he is perfect. And the Bible says that he is able to help those who are being tempted. Tempted. You say, well, I'm not tempted to be right now, but you might be tempted tomorrow. And when you're tempted tomorrow, you need to know that you've got somebody on your side who is able to help you, who is able to come alongside of you and give you the power and the courage and the boldness to stand your ground against sin. Listen, when you're tempted, brothers and sisters, that's not evil. It is when you give in to the temptation that it turns into sin. You can stand your ground because you've got somebody who is walking with you over in chapter 4 of Hebrews verse 15 we know this Hebrews 4 verse 15 it says for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but we have one who was has been tempted in every way just as we are yet without sin He was tempted just like you, just like me, yet he was so without sin. He didn't give in to the temptation. We know the story of the temptation of Christ and how the the devil came along and he tried to tempt Jesus. And three times, each and every time, Jesus used a powerful, effective tool in overcoming that temptation. It is written. It is written. It is written. The Word of God says, the Word of God says, and I'm going to stand on the Word. Jesus didn't stand on his divinity in that moment. He stood on what the Bible says. And brothers and sisters, you and I must understand we've got somebody who can sympathize with our weaknesses because he was in all points tempted like we are, but without sin. He is able to help you. The last thing that I want to deal with is this. The practical importance of his deity for our Christian lives. What does it mean to you and me? Why did Jesus 
Why was he divinity and at the same time humanity? Why did essentially God become man? What does it say to you and I? First of all, it says this, and it lets us know that God confirms his promises. Remember in, in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve fell and they gave in to the temptation of sin, God promised at that moment, God spoke and he said, he said, listen, there is going to be, it will be the seed of the woman that will crush the head of the serpent. There will be one that will come who will bring deliverance. In that, from the very beginning and all through the Old Testament, God prophesied and, and, and through his prophets, he, he sent the message through them that there was going to be someone who would come and who would deliver them from their sin. Jesus came into this world to confirm that God means what he says and he will always, always fulfill his promises. He does not forget he will come through for you. And that's exactly what he did. Jesus came to this earth to become a faithful high priest and to take away sin. You don't need to turn there. Well, if you're still there in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 16 and 17 says, For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants, those who are by faith Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. If he did not come, if God did not become a man, if he didn't stoop to where we were and become human flesh like you and me, brothers and sisters, there is no identification that we could have that he would stand there and mediate for us with God the Father. There is no way that you and I could have this understanding that there is somebody on our side. And furthermore, you would still be in your sins. Because the Bible says in the last part of verse 17 that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Here's a wonderful, wonderful truth. He came, God became man, to destroy the works of the devil. The devil has no hold in your life anymore. He's not ruling in your life. You say, but wait a minute, I look and I see this temptation of this sin, this thing always seems to get the best of me. Then you're not yielding yourself to the one who came to deliver you and the one who said, I have come to destroy the power of the devil. Listen to what the Bible says in 1 John 3 verse 8. It says this, he who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And that's exactly what he did on the cross. And when he came out of the tomb, the devil became powerless. Somebody once said, the devil is toothless. All he can do is try to gum you. And those with false teeth understand about that a little bit more. <laughs> you know, you, you, you have a hard time chewing without any teeth. 
He can't do it alone. The only thing the Bible reveals to us in the New Testament, the only thing the devil can do is deceive. And those who know the truth won't be deceived. But the last thing is this. He came to give us an example of a holy life. He came to show us what it was like to live a holy life. You say, I don't have the power to do it. And you're right, in your own strength, you don't have the ability, you don't have the power. But we need to get with Jesus a whole lot more. We need to get into his presence a whole lot more and understand that what he wants to do is he wants to live that life through us. He wants to put that life into us so that we can live holy in an unholy world. I'm going to close with this. So if you would just turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. And I want to read a number of scriptures. There's really one scripture that points this truth out. But as I was reading through the rest of these verses of scripture, it just became clear I needed to finish with this passage of scripture to let us know what it was that Jesus has done for us and how important it is for us to hold to the truth and contend for the faith that he is deity. He is the Son of God. The Bible says this, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He became the example of a holy life. You see, it's no big deal that I live holy, set apart to the Lord. Yes, it is a big deal. If you are going to proclaim that you are a Christian... To live anything other than a holy life is to degrade what it is that Jesus has done for you and for me. It is to pull it down to an earthly level. And brothers and sisters, he came down to an earthly level to lift you up to a heavenly level. There used to be a phrase that people used that said, uh, simply said, you know, that person, they are, they're too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. I, I got to tell you something. In the end, you, if you're, you're too earthly minded, you're going to be of no heavenly good. If we're living on a level that is lower than what Jesus shows us that we can live, we're going to be no good to the kingdom. And God has, as Julian mentioned earlier, God has a plan in store for your life. We got to come up higher. Let's continue reading. Verse 22 says, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls, Jesus. Brothers and sisters, when it all comes down to it, you look at this whole book. You look at it from cover to cover. It's all about Jesus. It's just all about him. It all points to him. In the Old Testament, it points to him. 
And the New Testament points to him. We're living in the New Testament age of grace. And we look back at the cross at what Jesus did for us. In the New Testament, they looked forward to the cross and what it would accomplish for him. But, but in the end, from the very get-go to the very last word in Revelation, it's all about Jesus. That he is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He reigns supreme. Listen, you might say, well, look around in the world. It's, a, it's an absolute mess. I'm here to let you know there's going to be a day where that absolute mess is going to get cleaned up because Jesus came in the flesh for you and for me to redeem us and give us the hope of eternal life. Let's stand to our feet right now. Let's give God praise. Let's praise him right now. Let's magnify the name of the Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Worthy are you, Jesus. You are worthy. Lord, we magnify your name. We love you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. Come on and worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords. God has highly exalted him, given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of the Father. Hallelujah, hallelujah. We love you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. We magnify your holy name. We magnify your name, O God. Lord, we love you. We glorify you, Jesus. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Lord, we praise you today. We praise you today. We praise you, Jesus. We glorify your mighty name. Hallelujah. Hallelujah to you, Lord Jesus.